Welcome to History Talk, produced by Origins, current events and historical perspective at Ohio State University. I'm your host, Leticia Wiggins. And I'm your other host, Patrick Patyandi. Discussing climate change is nothing less than discussing human survival, let alone quality of life. The stakes are that high. On today's History Talk, we invite three Ohio State historians and Origins contributors to discuss the ramifications and history of global warming and climate. Hi, my name is Sam White. I teach here in the History Department at Ohio State University, and I'm the author of The Climate of Rebellion in the Early Modern Ottoman Empire. Hi, I'm John Brooke. I teach um, in the department as well at Ohio State. Um, I have been teaching for about 20 years in global environmental history and the author of uh, Climate Change and the Course of Global History. Hi, I'm Nick Breifogel. I am uh, one of the editors of uh, Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. Uh, I'm also uh, a member of the uh, history department here at Ohio State uh, and a specialist in environmental history. Wonderful. Thank you all for joining us today. We're really happy to have you here. To begin, we'd like to ask this question, how do historians define climate change and how has the Earth's climate changed over time? This big question, we'll throw it to you first, John. Well, that is a very big question. And, and <laughs> how, do, how do historians define climate change? I think we define climate change the way scientists define climate change, which is um, looking for big patterns that change climate regimes. What are the standard? What are the standard patterns in which there might be some moderate change, moderate you know oscillation, and then change means a shift in the general background regime. Um, and usually the concern is abrupt change rather than just plain old simple change. And abrupt means happening in decades uh, rather than overnight. I would say there are different types of climate change. There are both more gradual patterns, at least as we see them in human time, changes over centuries or millennia. But then there are also the big abrupt events, uh, such as winters uh, and cold summers that fall in the wake of big volcanic eruptions. And both are important in history at different scales and uh, for different reasons. And I think for humans, what's most important about climate change is uh, is, is temperature uh, and access and availability of water. Uh, and uh, and the question of sort of predict uh, predictability or stability of uh, uh, of climate. So as we as historians, I think go back in time to look at questions of climate. Those are the issues that are of particular importance to us because those are the ones that affect uh, our ability to get food, uh, our ability to survive, and our, our relationship to uh, to disease and disease vectors and this sort of thing. In what ways has climate change over the past decades, centuries, or even millennia changed here, and how have humans really? come to shape the climate. And Sam, if you wanted to start us off on this one. Certainly. So the Anthropocene is really two things. And I think that's important to keep in mind. One is an actual proposal that is before the International Commission on Stratigraphy. That is the group of geologists who define how we periodize uh, geological time. And it is very probable that within the next few years, the textbooks will change. And instead of ending with the Holocene as our last geological epoch, we will end with the Anthropocene. So this will be an official change, recognizing that the degree of human impact on the environment leaves a clear trace in the geological record, uh, worthy of being renamed a new epoch. Now, the Anthropocene is also a concept that has already been used, uh, even though the official name change has not taken place. And that is essentially a recognition that we have changed the Earth's environment so much that it no longer makes sense to talk about environmental change and human change as being two separate things. Global warming has been a very important part of this. 
uh, because it touches every part of the Earth. You can, there's nowhere on the Earth you can go uh, where the atmosphere is the same as it was before people began burning fossil fuels. Uh, likewise, nowhere in the ocean you can go uh, that the pH level, the acidity level, will be the same because oceans have been acidified also by the emission of carbon dioxide. That said, there are still a lot of uncertainties around this concept. Some people advocate an old Anthropocene, that is to say uh, that humans have changed the Earth for thousands or hundreds of years mm, okay. to the degree that we should have started the Anthropocene maybe thousands or hundreds of years in the past. Others advocate a much more recent Anthropocene, connecting it to either the Industrial Revolution or just to big environmental changes that have occurred since the so-called Great Acceleration of worldwide economic growth since the 1950s. Well, that covers an awful lot of the waterfront right there, um, and I can't agree more. I mean, the the, the um, and, and the debate is on. The debate it may take you know the, the official debate among the geological in the geological community will probably take another two or three years. But the essential problem okay. is the degree you know is a debate about when and where in human history, um, in Earth history, uh, human action began to significantly change. Um, the the shape of the Earth system. How does the Earth Earth natural systems work, and and what degree we've been intervening and making making differences that um, both are observable on the one hand, but then significant on another. Not always the same thing. We can mm-hmm. leave marks, and that's very interesting. But when it when it has a significant impact on how these systems work and how they how rainfall appears and doesn't appear, um, and and temperatures shift, uh, then we're into the into the significant arena rather than just simply the marker of the marker of, of an impact and, and it sounds like there's a there's maybe some debate more among geologists rather than historians perhaps are historians in more agreement about this sort of idea this terminology or maybe not I think there's a debate about when I think there's you know there's one one argument that is put forward by um, William Rudiman at the at the University of Virginia um, who proposes that the acceleration of agriculture in around 5,000 years ago, uh, the rise of the state and the acceleration of of population growth in the late Neolithic, in the early Bronze Age, uh, began to just have a slight impact on greenhouse gases that may have had significant impacts. Um, So that's, that's, that's sort of... The, the we'll call it the old house, the old Anthropocene. Then there's okay. a, a question of whether um, global colonization by Europeans had such impacts, um, including the death of large numbers of huge numbers of, of Native American peoples, that they affected the way uh, just the sheer changing carbon structure of the of the new world changed uh, changed changed atmospheres and then there's the great acceleration idea which says that basically we really want to focus on on the fossil fuel revolution of the last industrial hundred. revolution yeah, that sort right. of idea yeah okay right. Right. i was actually interested we, we've kind of laid out many of the different uh different possibilities for when it might start and this strikes me as one of the big issues with this concept is we don't mm. really know we haven't agreed yet exactly where it might begin and they even go back right to the to the great kind of megafaunal extinctions uh, of yeah. the kind of late Pleistocene as another possibility of, uh, of a moment of this sort of thing. And so I'm, I'm curious actually to hear from you. You've kind of laid out the different possibilities, w- which ones you guys really uh, uh, lean towards. I mean, I, I, I'm very much uh, someone who uh, I, I would go with the Industrial Revolution as the moment of great change. Uh, and with, uh, so that, you know, 
very early 19th century is when we start to see, uh, in some ways, the beginning of this time uh, with the great acceleration uh, of the 1950s and on as a, as a continuation of, of those larger processes. I'm curious, would you agree with that? I don't know where you guys fall in, uh, in terms of this, uh, this larger question. So I would be inclined to take an earlier Anthropocene. I'd be inclined to basically replace the Holocene, which is the most recent geological epoch that begins with the uh, present interglacial period, uh, and replace it with the Anthropocene. And I think the reason is is that one of the most uh, cogent changes in the geological record will be the fossil record. Uh, And there is a change that we have moved from mostly wild animals uh, dispersed in different populations throughout the world to a world where in the future we're going to find that most biomass was concentrated in people and in domesticated animals who have been exchanged throughout the world. And so to really capture that entire change, you would have to start fairly early with early agriculture and domestication. Uh, Otherwise, you'd just be looking for a change in degree rather than a change in kind. Also, it would be a bit awkward to have such a short Holocene epoch, um, then suddenly interrupted by the Anthropocene. So it might be more convenient simply to replace it. Hmm. Uh, That said, I I don't think there is necessarily one right answer. Uh, I mean, some would even date it as recently as, say, the first atomic fallout, simply because that's a very clear-cut marker in uh, geological time. There's there's the radioactive uh, fallout that is very clearly present in the stratigraphy. Yeah, there, there's a, um, a term that they're using in the literature now called the golden spike. Well, where is the golden spike that will mark the exact moment? And is, you know, is, it, is it 1945? Is it, is it actually the end of the Test Ban Treaty in 1964? Is it the um, – I must admit I look at this in two ways. <clears throat> one um, as a teacher, one as a scholar, and the teacher one is more fun because um, – it involves argument, and, and I'm almost hoping they don't resolve this too soon because <laughs> then, it, then there's no argument anymore. It's a great uh, teaching device. It's yeah. a great teaching device, and I know I don't resolve it in my class. I just say you can take whatever position you want. You got to support it, and we can arguments. Good arguments can be made for for Sam's position, which is that there is no Holocene. That that uh, the Anthropocene began with uh, with the the end of the Ice Ages and the the emergence of of an act ecologically active humanity. The planet has been through all these cycles of climate change over the course of its existence. And how has climate change then affected human communities at different times in human history? And what are some of the ways in which different communities at different historical moments have responded to this climate change? John, can you think of an example, I guess? Well, my, my big picture response to that is we are products of climate change. We the earth has been cooling for about 50 million years. And we, you know, it's been a long cooling process that has resulted in, ultimately, we live in a, a little shelf of warm, warm platform of, 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 inter, of interglacial climate in the midst of a bunch of major ice ages that go back for 700,000 years and really began two and a half million years ago when we were not humans. We are the product of an increasingly uh, glaciated, cycling. Um, we are the product of climate change. We've been. There's a great book by Stephen Ambrose called "The Children of the Ice," and it's a little bit. I would say we are the children of droughts and uh, <laughs> stress, and you know, a brown earth. You know, we are children of East Africa. We really didn't. We didn't really face the glaciers, um, but we are. We are the product of the stresses um, of you know of 
about two and a half to five million years of increasing um, volatility of climate change. So, so we in our lives experience what we assume is kind of normality, um, which is you know the world of the last you know, 150, 200 years, maybe maybe ten thousand years. Um, the problem is that our actions. Um, in the great acceleration, our actions of the last uh, hundred years are having the same effect of uh, reversing the course of cooling um, that took literally tens of millions of years to to unfold, and it's happening overnight. It, narrowing that down, though, just to the last few thousand years of history, if we can call that narrow, <laughs> okay. I, I guess yeah, I would right. see two kinds of changes. Uh, one are changes that are felt mostly in communities on some sort of climate margin as gradual change pushes them really beyond uh, sustainability. So mm, okay. I think that is why we, we tend to think of examples like, say, the Greenland Vikings. I don't know if that's a very typical example, though, an important example. When we think about how most climate change has affected most people. I believe most climate change has affected most people uh, in the form of actual weather. Uh, that is to say, it's not the gradual change that people noticed. It's the greater frequency and extremes of weather. And those impacts have tended to occur at times when people are vulnerable for other reasons, uh, whether it's ecological reasons or political reasons, whether it's because their agricultural systems were overburdened or uh, not diversified enough, or because of some uh, political difficulties that they were going through that were ultimately exacerbated by climate, uh, sometimes pushing communities into uh, civil war, unrest, or uh, foreign war. And, and there's two things I, I guess I wanted to highlight. One is is that the the story of the human relationship with climate really you know, highlights the, uh, the the real estate maxim, right? That it's location, location, location. Uh, in the sense that where you are on the planet at a given moment uh, is uh, affects how uh, a community is going to be. Uh, transformed or impacted by uh, by various changes in climate, kind of globally, and uh, and so you know if you take for example you know the period say from about 900 to 1300 of uh, you know AD, uh, you can see the ways in which uh, in northern Europe because the climate gets a little bit warmer and a little bit uh, uh, a little bit better for northern Europe, uh, there's a, there's a takeoff and so there's there's real opportunity uh, for northern Europeans at that moment. It all comes crashing down in the early part of the 14th century, but uh, uh, but for that period of time, generally, it's a more welcoming type of climate. And, and as a result, we see uh, we see transformations of their societies. At the same time, uh, it's, uh, it's a disastrous uh, series of occurrences in, in the U.S. South, what is now the U.S., uh, in, in the North American Southwest, uh, where that, that sort of the, the increase in, uh, in, in, in temperature uh, makes that area extraordinarily dry. And then many of the, the, the native civilizations there, the ancestral Pueblo or the Sinagua, the nice labeled Sinagua, the Hohokam, these civilizations in some ways collapse uh, and they're unable to maintain themselves in the place that they were. And uh, the location matters tremendously there. You asked also about sort of how people have responded. And, and I think that one of the things that is, that's important as we study uh, climate history, particularly going back uh, over a long time period, is, is to realize the degree to which in in the life of or in the experience of the of humans as a species, uh, our response has generally been migration. That when climate change okay. becomes difficult for us, 
we move somewhere else. Uh, and that's something that really sets us apart today. And one of the things that makes us very strange this moment in our species history uh, is that migration is much harder for us at this point in time, uh, partly because we live in these settled and now primarily urban societies where we, we have fixed ourselves in, in, uh, in the Maybe land. Maybe nation states with more secure borders, more or less, too, mm-hmm. that want or do not want migration, right, from them? Exactly. I mean, yeah. I think that the, uh, I mean, we see this in the people moving north into, into the United States. We see people trying to come across the Mediterranean just recently and, uh, and this sort of thing, that, uh, that there are social and economic and political issues surrounding uh, migration, uh, but as well as infrastructural ones. And just uh, the whole way we've created uh, our urban industrial societies is, uh, is quite different from what we've had in the past. Yeah, we ha- we have to we have to really come to grips with the fact that um, I always forget exactly when the one billion mark was hit. I think it was about eighteen hundred, um, roughly speaking. I mean, we're now at seven billion people. Like when I was a child, it was about three and a half billion people in the early nineteen fifties. I mean, the the kind of overriding density of human population on the planet um, is. is totally transforms the circumstances. We can look at the past and see see uh, how they responded to climate changes that affected them, usually drought, and, and often they could migrate. But but now we're just living in a totally different circumstance. And, and uh, in some measure, um, you know, we have, we have exceeded our capacity. And so uh, now we've kind of moved into a topic I've really wanted to bring up, and I'm really eager to jump into here for kind of current day debate <clears throat> in politics. How should we as a species be responding to climate change today? Um, And as we've kind of been touching on a little bit already, are certain types of political structures and systems more or less able to respond to the pressures that climate change is creating? Um, And Sam, maybe if you want to start us off here. I think in time, we will come up with more useful insights from history to really give us uh, practical policy lessons in adaptation. We're not there yet, I don't believe. Uh, And the reason is that for so many years, we were just trying to make the case that climate changes and extreme weather were important. And now I think we've made that case, but we now have to go and find more good examples of successful adaptation and see if we can really look at those in detail and find out why they were successful, especially compared to other examples where climate really pushed a society into some sort of crisis. Um, So I think the biggest lesson, of course, is uh, that we as a species should be trying to stop climate change, uh, or at least uh, slow it down to a manageable rate. Mm. Uh, until we have a better sense of whether we really can adapt, uh, that seems to be the most prudent course. Uh, the, the question of, of how current societies should adjust, adapt, and mitigate, um, what strike, struck me in the last five years is how much um, major decision-making bodies Sadly, non-democratic decision-making bodies have begun to adjust, begun to realize. One of the things I like to show to my students is look at the military. The military's joint operating environment manual has enormous amounts of material about population growth, migration, climate change, um, drought. They are very concerned about this being their operating environment. Uh, Insurance companies are very concerned about their operating environment because it's costing them tons of money. Um, And uh, even energy companies understand that they have to adjust to the future. Um, And some of the, you know, so, so what's sad is that the democratic process has been blocked 
trapped by, in many countries, perhaps this one particularly, um, to make decisions about what is clearly, you know, clearly a wrenching um, a reality uh, that it would be nice to not have to think about, um, but it is happening. And, <laughs> right. and, and uh, so heads in the sand. You know, we can't leave our heads in the sand. So the, the process is unfolding, and it wouldn't be nice that democratic structures uh, could be part of that process and not essentially be um, be shut out of that process. Right. But what is striking is is how uh, you know how how we are not totally stuck in the sand. That important decision making bodies are actually moving very rapidly. Um, and the market actually is beginning to work. People are beginning to invest large sums of money and see, um, uh, and it's having discernible effects, which is, you know, one of the most important things that we should realize. Over the last 150 years, economic growth and greenhouse gas emissions have, have tracked each other perfectly. And they just, one is essentially a mirror image of the other. This last year, they diverged. Greenhouse emissions flatlined, Chinese emissions dropped, U.S. emissions dropped in a context of economic growth. Last year was the first time. This is we will That's look amazing. back in 2014 as any major rupture, and so we're beginning to move away. And actually, if you look at the numbers um, about the the relationship between the scale of economic growth and the the, the rate of economic growth and the rate of of um, Greenhouse gas emissions began to diverge eh, about about 1985. You can see the beginnings, maybe 1990. You see the beginnings of a slight break um, in the rates of patterns. And now we have a situation where we may be heading into negative growth of emissions with positive growth of the economy. That, it may be too little too late, but that's an incredibly important step. I was going to – I think that there are – if there aren't specific kind of policy considerations we might be able to give and sort of saying, oh, you know, you should do X, Y, Z, um, it seems to me that the study of, of kind of climate and of environmentalism more broadly offers us some some kind of big-picture ways of thinking that I think could be – and I think that some of the things that historians have to offer uh, to the broader public uh, is is to offer ways of uh, uh, of understanding the process kind of broadly. And, and and there's several things that I think I would highlight. One is is that we we have to remember the degree to which we we as humans as a species have a have a small little window in which we can survive and live. Right, the Goldilocks, you know, just right porridge uh, that we can live in. And if it's if it's too hot, and if it's too cold, if it's too wet, if it's too dry, uh, then that that poses problems for us as a species. We're not a species that can live in uh, a huge wide range of different uh, uh, different kind of hydrological or, or temperature based kind of structures. Um, and that we need to be reminded, I, I think, uh, of the degree to which climate change is uh, is not something that's just happening now, that it is a part of our planet's history uh, right from the get-go and has changed uh, you know, multiple times. And that so that rather than thinking about, as, as John said, the sort of normal that we have, we all think, well, this is sort of normal. And we think about, well, last year was a little bit colder than this year. This year had a little bit more snow than last year, these sorts of things. But that the ch- change is part of, uh, of, of planetary history and that we have to be thoughtful uh, in terms of how we structure our societies and economies to realize that change is, change is happening and changes, changes will happen uh, and they have happened. 
small changes can make a really big difference. Um, and uh, you know, Sam, when you, when you talk about the Little Ice Age, well, it was about a one to two degree on average Celsius difference. Probably less than one degree Celsius. Less than one degree yeah. Celsius. Uh, so that you know, several hundred years ago when we hit the Little Ice Age, uh, which has a, a tremendous impact on the planet, I mean, the change in, in temperature on average is is tiny. And I think that for a public, we have to realize that we think one degree and we think, oh, well, I can't tell the difference between, you know, 58 degrees Fahrenheit and 59 degrees Fahrenheit. But at certain times and certain places, that can be enormously important. So, so little change is going to have big impacts and we need to be conscious of that. And it also strikes me that uh, we have to be aware of the degree to which it's an immensely complex system uh, that we live in. Uh, the the whole climate or you know Earth's climate structure and environmental structures, as well as the the human socioeconomic, political, cultural, religious structures within, are, are enormously complicated. When changes happen in those, even little changes, it develops these kind of feedback loops, sometimes that we can predict and sometimes that we can't, uh, and that we need to be very conscious of the way in which you have these self-reinforcing uh, types of processes that are that are at work. So that these kinds of broader uh, patterns and ways of understanding, I think, are enormously important for us to be contexts in which we, we frame and construct uh, our ways of thinking about how to, to implement actually specific policies. This is an important thing to bring up because, especially here in the United States, uh, despite significant amounts of the scientific evidence, scientists are fairly unsuccessful at persuading people about climate change. And we talked earlier about the Anthropocene and putting that in books, and I can't imagine that not meeting some resistance. Yeah. Well, I, uh, oh, go ahead. Go. Yeah, I, I would say that I do believe that people tend to look at science uh, as a producing theories, which is a little bit unfair. And they look at history as producing facts, right. uh, which may also be unfair. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and for that reason, though, if, if we as historians say the climate has changed and is changing, and we can draw upon various types of scientific and written evidence to say that, uh, then it does communicate to a certain audience, including an audience who's often more skeptical of climate change science, uh, what is that, that, cha- that this change is real. Um, also, we can draw on a range of stories, of anecdotes, of colorful images and narratives that often make what can seem like a very abstract problem seem much more real and convincing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that for me, I was just going to I think the storytelling is extraordinarily important for what historians can do and what the humanities can do. Totally. Because when you see a graph of CO2 <laughs> levels and you, it looks like a hockey stick, and but you don't really know what the difference between three, you know, 301 parts per million or 400 parts per million really is, uh, to be able to tell a human story uh, of what that actually means in terms of the, the daily lives of, uh, uh, of peoples and families and communities, that that's, uh, that's a tremendously important thing uh, that we can bring. Sometimes we obviously need to tell stories, um, but I think sometimes historians get a little too obsessed with telling stories on too small a scale. I think that we mm. do need to make we need to we need to uh, ask our the public to think hard about they think hard about money. That's numbers. I think they can handle numbers when they come to. Uh, <laughs> and so I'll throw some numbers out there. So we're up above four hundred uh, parts per million. Well, the normal, the norm. When I was a kid, the normal, the the reality back then was about three fifteen, three ten parts per million CO two. The normal before any car, car before uh, industrial revolution was about two hundred and eighty parts per million. Okay, so that's a difference now of hundred and twenty. We've gone up hundred and twenty from a base of of two eighty. Um, so, what was it like during the ice ages? When there was a half a mile of ice, 
on top of Lake Erie. The CO2 levels were 180 parts per million. So that is, we have gone, we have, it's not a small one degree, you know, in terms of the pressure on, the greenhouse gas pressure on the global system, we have done an ice age in reverse. We have heated, we have injected greenhouse gases in less than 100 years. Um, In fact, you know, in 60 years, uh, we have injected 100, 100 parts per million into the air, which is a ice age scale change. On the same scale as a major ice age, not the little ice age, but a the Pleistocene, the when there is literally a, a half, you know, and and I like to, the way I like to describe this is, um, boys and girls in my classes, um, <laughs> we are we are we are the frog in the pot, but we are also the the term I like is the slingshot. We are pulled the slingshot back. We haven't quite let go yet. The full effects of this have not been realized, and when they do, um, and it could be, you know, it could happen in a non-linear fashion, um, and things will suddenly shift very fast. I think that's a really great metaphor here to end on as we've covered a lot of topics here on our discussion. So I'd like to thank Sam White, uh, John Brooke, and Nicholas Breifogel for joining us today on History Talk. Thanks, guys. This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University. Our main editors are Stephen Kong and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Pacciandi and Leticia Wiggins. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more at our website, origins.osu.edu, on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.